So we're continuing in Ephesians 4 this morning. I'm going to dive into our text. I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which is not on your handout. That was last week, but just as a reminder for context. So I'll read the first six verses, and then I'll read verses 7 through 16. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now to our passage. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand your word. Lord, this is a beautiful and challenging passage. Help us to see the goodness of it, that you have given the church people that we might be equipped for the work of ministry. Lord, help us to see how we're engaged in that and how we're not. And I pray that you would give us grace to see what our next step is. So come and teach us your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you may know, I attended uh, Duke University, so I'm a little bit in mourning this morning. Still trying to recover from our Loss in the tournament on Sunday and the destruction of my bracket, which was affectionately called Mount Zion. So Duke's out, Zion's out. There'll be no feasting in the house of Zion like we sing sometimes in corporate worship. But the tournament is always really full of amazing games, which got me thinking, what's the most amazing performance or game you've witnessed in person? In a room this size, there's a good chance some of you were there for Texas beating USC in the Rose Bowl. There's a good chance some of you were there when the Mavs won the finals. There's a good chance some of you were there when the Cowboys, if you remember, won the Super Bowl. For me, for me, when I was at Duke, uh, one of the most amazing experiences I've had was getting to be part of Krzyzewskiville, which is the tent city outside of Cameron Indoor Stadium. So uh, I, I camped out for weeks. And, and usually the, the UNC games either in the middle of the season or at the end of the season. And I think the year, one of the years I camped out, it was like the last game. So it was in March. So you're camping from like January to March. You're living in a tent 
you're sleeping there a number of nights. You got to be ready for tent checks or you get kicked to the back of the line. And so I'm in the tent. We're all getting sick. We're figuring out how to stay in school and pass our classes, all for the chance to be there when the doors open and Duke plays UNC. And when the game finally arrives, we stand for the whole game. We're sick and exhausted, but we're not sitting down. We're standing the whole game. We're screaming. We're chanting. The building is shaking. And we won. It was amazing. In a room like this, we could put together a really amazing list of things like that. But here's another question. What's the difference between being a spectator and being a participant? Because I camped out for Duke UNC, but I was just in the stands. But sophomore year... For a brief moment, I was on the court. I signed up for a walk-on tryout. So I got to run a mile in under six minutes, had hit that threshold. I took a physical. I met with an assistant coach. I trained, tried to get my game back together after high school. And then we showed up for Midnight Madness. And so the varsity team, they scrimmaged in front of the student body. And then it was our turn, 30 guys. So five-on-five scrimmages, six minutes, Cameron Indoor Stadium, packed house, student body watching. And there I was, so much adrenaline that I like lost my breath before we had hardly gotten going on a six-minute scrimmage. But some of my friends made signs for me. I even made a couple shots somehow. And after the scrimmage, they took us over to the practice gym and put us through a workout. So we didn't finish until around like two or three in the morning, and I was completely spent. And none of us made the team. (laughs) But for a night, I was out of the stands and in the game. And that's a totally different experience. There's a massive difference between being a spectator and being a participant, between being on the sidelines and actually being in the game. So think about it. Spectators may invest some time and money. Participants actually invest their whole life. Spectators sit while the participants sweat. The spectators cheer, but the participants actually compete. Spectators watch. Participants actually play. So why say all that? Because, brothers, there's really a huge difference between being a spectator and being a participant when it comes to knowing Jesus and serving Jesus. Many of our churches are full of people who are content to sit in the stands and never get in the game. And so Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 4 that this is not God's design. It's not God's desire. So I want to try to see this passage through this frame. Are we spectators Or are we participants? Are we in the stands or in the game? The first big question is, are we spectators or participants in the victory of Christ? If you look at how the passage starts in verses 7 through 10, Paul's telling the story of what Jesus has done, but in a unique way. We get this language of ascending and descending, and you're thinking, what's going on here? What's this strange quote? And so Paul's quoting from Psalm 68, 18. When when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 pictures the Lord as a triumphant warrior. It's the picture of a victory parade after battle. So imagine the king or general processing through the city. He's got his people lining the streets. And this parade is basically a demonstration of all the spoils of war. So my basketball brain went to, you know, when Dirk and the Mavs had their victory parade through the streets of Dallas. And all that was missing was a float with LeBron and D-Wade and Chris Bosh and Pat Riley on it. So it would be very clear that these guys lost and Dirk won and all the spoils go to him. That's kind of the picture of Psalm 68. So what Paul does is he sees this psalm fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection and ascension. 
in his victory over death and his return to the Father's right hand, Jesus has made a public spectacle of sin and death and all of Satan's host. So right before his ascension in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has conquered. All the spoils are his. So we should ask, Jesus, what are you going to do with all that? Well, Psalm 68 was associated with Pentecost, the feast that commemorated God giving his people the law through Moses. When the day of Pentecost arrives in Acts 2, God doesn't give the law. He gives the Spirit. So Jesus returns to heaven in order that the Spirit could be poured out upon his followers, that they might have the law written on their hearts and live a whole new life in Christ. So what did Jesus do with all that power? He shared it with his people by giving us his Spirit and by giving us gifts. And so we read that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The same Christ who humbled himself and descended to earth, to live and die and rise again, the same Christ who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, that same Christ has given every believer a gift. Do you believe that? If you're in Christ, that he's given you some gift to serve him. Paul just finished talking about our unity by using the word one seven times. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But... He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So our gifts are diverse and different. We're not all the same. It's not cookie cutter. And this is what makes God's plan that we talked about for unity even more beautiful. Like the Trinity, we're called to this beautiful unity in diversity, diversity in unity. He's given us all these different gifts, but they're all pulling in the same direction for his glory, for the common good not just for us, but for him and for others, that the body of Christ might be built up. And we'll get into that more, but for now I just want to ask, are we spectators or participants in this victory of Jesus Christ? Is this gospel story just a story we've heard, or has it become our story? If you've only heard this story, but you're not sure about Jesus, we're really glad that you're here and that you're coming In the Gospels, we hear about Jesus' disciples. They're his inner circle. And then we hear about the crowds. The crowds are usually spectators. They're sitting on the sidelines, enjoying the show, but they don't know Jesus personally. They love the miracles. They love the excitement, but they they don't really love Jesus. So at the end of the day, the crowds go home, but the disciples, the apostles, stay with Jesus and learn more about him personally. So our hope is that the Lord will open your eyes and help you see that this is not just a story. This is the story. And by faith, it becomes your story. You come out of the crowds and you become a disciple. But if this is your story, think about how significant that is. Think about what you're saying. You share in Christ's victory. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. What he did in the past covers your past. And he's with you in this present moment. And what he's said and promised for the future secures your future. So you're not a spectator. You are a participant in his victory. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And the Lord has given you a gift that you might serve him. So how do you do that? That leads to our second big question. 
Are we spectators or participants in the work of ministry? You see Paul use that phrase in verses 11 and 12. I think a lot of us have missed the Bible's vision of ministry. Because we live in this time where so many jobs are professionalized and specialized. So much in our culture is just consumer-oriented. And so these realities have infiltrated the church. Many people see the pastor as just a CEO or a spiritual service provider. But is that what God intended? If you read verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul says that Jesus gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And we can say a lot about these different callings, these different people, but that's not really our main focus this morning. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson kind of summarizes this. He says, these callings focus on the ministry of God's word. Apostles and prophets gave the word of God in the first instance and proclaimed it. Evangelists served with them and were to preach it. Pastors were settled in congregations and were to use it to feed the people of God. All of these ministries have a single purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we could almost miss it because Paul doesn't really mention the word of God explicitly, but he's saying something really important. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken great care to give his church leaders who will be faithful to preach and teach his word. Now, after the canon of scripture was closed, we don't really need apostles and prophets anymore, but God is still giving his church shepherds and teachers today. So before we talk about the role of the shepherd or teacher or pastor, I just want to say something about the word of God. If we want to stop being spectators and start being participants in the work of ministry, we need a new approach to the word of God. I did this illustration uh, with high school and college small groups some years ago. So imagine a room full of guys, fewer guys than this, and I have a box full of donuts. So I've got a donut here. Now I give everyone in the room a donut, but I say, you can't eat it, don't eat it. And then I start putting the guys in groups. So group one over here, you guys are in the classroom with the donut. Just study the donut. Study the donut. Got it? Group two, don't eat it. You guys are in the courtroom with the donut. You just argue about the donut. Group three over here, you guys are in the art gallery with the donut. Just admire the donut. Isn't it beautiful? And then I picked one guy, like Charlie Robinson, said, Charlie, the donut's food. Eat the donut. <laughs> and so I gave them time to, you know, study and argue and admire about the donut. And you know what? No one was really excited to just study the donut. And no one was really excited to just argue about the donut. And no one was really excited to just admire the donut. And everyone hated Charlie because he got to eat the donut. <laughs> and it's kind of silly, but it's an illustration of the different ways we relate to God's word. Because we read the word sometimes just like we're in a classroom and we just study it. And we read the word like we're in the courtroom. We just want to argue about it. And we read the word like we're in the art gallery. We just want to admire it. You know, look at the pretty pictures. And there's some merit to all of these. But you can do, we can do all of these as spectator sports. You can study the Bible, argue about the Bible, admire the Bible, and still be on the sidelines. You know what God says multiple times in different ways in his word? He basically says, eat this book. In Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah says, when your words came, I ate them. With the prophets, God says, take this scroll and eat it. 
Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So eating God's word is a metaphor for getting it inside us, letting it have its way with us. Now that requires getting out of our comfort zone of sitting in the stands and calling all the shots and actually getting into the arena where the Lord can change us however he wants. Because eating anything, if you thought about this, is an act of submission. Like once it goes down, you're at its mercy. So are we willing to submit to God's word and what he wants to do in our lives? In Acts 19, 9 through 10, we learn that when Paul was in Ephesus with these people he's writing to, he rented out Tyrannus Hall. So Tyrannus Paul and Tyrannus Hall, he's teaching the scriptures for hours a day. And it says he did that for two whole years. Hours a day, two whole years with these people. The Ephesians were like college football linemen. It's like their whole life was a quest for more food. How can we get bigger? How can we get stronger? We know what we're up against. And so they increased their intake of God's word because they were hungry and they wanted to grow. And you know what happened in Acts 19.20? It says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. No wonder. So it's worth asking, can we become the men God wants us to be with our current intake of God's word? Because the world is constantly discipling us. Are we getting into the places where we allow the word to work on us and make us more like Jesus? So we need a new approach to God's word, but we also need a new approach to our role in ministry. So what's the role of the shepherds and teachers, the pastors? What's the role of the saints, the lay people? If an outside observer looked at our churches, what would he conclude? Well, maybe the pastor's here to entertain these people and give them what they want. The people are here to be entertained and to consume what's being offered. And that may sound harsh, but in so many churches, something like the 80-20 rule or worse is in effect where 80% of the work's done by 20% of the people. A large percentage of people don't really give of their time, talent, and treasure. They're content to just sit and watch and consume what's being served. But this is not God's design for the church. As pastors and teachers, we're not here to entertain you. We're here to equip you. And as saints or lay people, you're not here to sit and consume. You're here to be equipped for the work of ministry and to be sent out to serve the Lord in your spheres of influence. So as you engage in the life of the church, wherever you are, which vision of ministry are you operating under? This consumer mindset that keeps you in the stands spectating? or the biblical mindset that equips you to get in the game and serve. So notice, Paul isn't saying that there's no role for a pastor to play. He's just saying that role is not for us to do it all ourselves. We want to be here to help you grow in Christ, figure out, cultivate, and exercise your gifts from God. We want to come alongside you and learn what challenges you're facing in the world, and we don't always do that very well. We want to help equip you to serve the Lord where you have access to people and places that we don't have. And when we fail to do that, we should repent and we should ask for your forgiveness and start again. If you're a lay person, here's some questions you might ask yourself. When it comes to the work of ministry, am I in the stands or am I in the game? When's the last time I approached a pastor or teacher and asked for help? Equip me, help me be equipped. 
Am I so engaged that I know where I need to be equipped for my spheres of influence, marriage, family, career, church, community? You're so in the game that you just know, man, I need help with this. And then obviously a great question is, what is God calling me to do now to take that next step? I just want to point out this vision of ministry seems horribly inefficient. <laughs> in the business world, you might say, get as much done with as many or, or with as few people as possible. And in the church, we're saying, get as much done with as many people as possible. Everyone should be plugged in. So we, pastors, with all the training experience, we should spend much of our time mobilizing you. Wait, what? Why not just send us out to do everything? We've gone to school. Well, because the task is so great that if we don't multiply disciples, we'll never be able to reach the world. We'd just be doing simple addition instead of multiplication. And what's even more incredible is this was Jesus' model. <laughs> if you're Jesus, how would you get the work of ministry done? Wouldn't you be tempted just a little to use all your power and just do it yourself? Guys, I got this. I'm Jesus, you know? And Jesus spent most of his time with 12 men. To their shock, he told them he was leaving and that that was going to be better for them. And then he sent his spirit to fill them so that they could disciple the world. Twelve men. Twelve broken, messy, sinful men. And one of them took his own life. The rest were radically changed by Jesus. That was his plan. There was no backup plan. That's still his plan. He's given the church pastors and teachers and leaders to equip the saints, to equip everyone, every believer, that we might take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. So some people think the work of ministry is for a few people to do all the time. And some people think the work of the ministry is for some of the people to do, maybe some of the time. But the Lord teaches us that the work of ministry is for all of his people all the time. We're all on all the time. So Christianity was never meant to be a spectator sport. And that's actually wonderful. That's great news for those of us who don't just want to sit in a chair and watch. We want it. We're guys. Like we want to get engaged. And it's awesome because being in the game is so much more exciting than watching. So our, our last big question follows logically from the first two. Are we spectators or participants in the unity and maturity of the church? So Paul makes it clear that God's immediate purpose for the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But beyond that, the ultimate goal of ministry is that the church would be built up. That as everyone's growing, engaging, and serving, it builds up the body of Christ. As the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it accomplishes this remarkable unity that we've been talking about for a couple weeks that Paul's describing. It's the unity we already have mysteriously because we're united with Christ, but it's also a unity that we need to strive to attain and maintain. So he says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul never lets us off with a lower standard. It's always Christ. We can talk all we want about unity or maturity in the church, but if we're not seeking to know Christ and serve Christ, we're not really in the game. It's really easy for us to be critics of the church and forget that if we're in Christ, we are the church. We're members of his body. So what can we do by God's grace to contribute to the growing unity and maturity of the church? 
It's our calling together to chase that. So as we participate in the life of the church, the Lord moves us on to maturity. Otherwise, our growth ends up being stunted and we remain immature. And so that's what Paul warns us about in verse 14. He doesn't want us to be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So a humble, dependent, childlike faith is pleasing to God. But an immature, childish faith is not. We shouldn't be blown around like ships with no sails, no rudder. So brothers, if you feel like you've been in the same place for years or decades, just hear the Lord's gracious invitation to grow up in Christ. There's more that he wants to do for you. There's more that he wants to do through you. The standard for maturity, he says, is the fullness of Christ. We never are going to arrive this side of heaven. And then Paul gives us one practice that's essential in going on to maturity. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love is part of God's plan for growing us up in Christ. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Think about it. Every time we open our mouths, it's like we're sending a package to someone. And as they open up, as they open it up, will they find that the contents of the package are truth and that it's packaged with love? Because it's hard to do all three of those things well. Speak, truth, love. Sometimes we fail to speak when we need to be speaking. And sometimes we speak, but we don't speak the truth or the whole truth. Sometimes we speak the truth, but we don't do it in love. And so have we learned to speak the truth in love? It's what the Lord always does for us. He speaks the truth in love to us. So in our lives, can we speak the truth in love in this context with our brothers in Christ? Can we do it at home with our roommate or with our spouse or our children? Can we do it at work where the twisting of the truth or refusing to love might seem to help us get ahead? Can we speak the truth in love with our neighbors when it's getting harder and harder? The cost of following Jesus gets higher and higher in our culture. So in the end, Paul reminds us that we're growing up into Christ, that Christ is the head. And that is so helpful to remember because Paul has really kind of gotten under our skin this morning. I don't know if you feel it. He's calling us off the sidelines and into the game. And for some of us, that's a little overwhelming and uncomfortable. So for a moment, I just want to look at the passage again and ask you, where do you see Jesus in the passage? If you start at the beginning, he's the one who's given every one of his people a gift. He's the one who left heaven, descended to earth, and then ascended to heaven again. He's the one who fills all things. He's the one who gave the church shepherds and teachers to preach and teach the word. He's the object of our knowledge. He's the standard of our maturity, and he's the head. He's everything for his church, and we are his body. And if you think about the body metaphor, it really kind of brings it all home for us. Clearly, Christ is the head. He's the most important, but we are his body. And if you think about our bodies, every part matters. So think about being a part of the body. If our heart or lungs or stomach or mouth or leg 
just says one day, you know what? I'm not going to participate anymore. I'm just going to sit here and watch what's going on. We're in big trouble. One part of our body goes wrong, and it affects the whole thing. So the body relies on every single part being in the game. And so it is with the church. We'll never enjoy the unity and maturity that God wants for us that Paul is talking about as long as members of the body, as Paul says, aren't working properly. So when I was a senior at Highland Park, I had the chance to be on a really great basketball team. It probably wasn't great because of me, (laughs) Uh, but I got to play a role. And it was a rare team where everyone bought into their roles. So we had Chris Young. If you're familiar with Chris, he's about 6'11". He went on to play in college and then have a long Major League Baseball career, won a World Series with the Royals. Um, So he's a great basketball player. We had shooters. We had rebounders. We had passers. We had defenders. We had guys who were passionate and crazy. And we had guys who were composed and under control. We had guys who never played unless we were up 20. But those guys pushed us in practice so that we would be ready for the games. We had guys who would crack a ridiculous joke and like tick our coach off, but it would make us stay loose. It was quite a cast of characters, and we found this incredible unity in that diversity somehow. And that that unity made for a really incredible experience because every single guy was participating. No one was spectating, even the guys who were on the bench. Interesting. And when we lost in the state championship game, we were all heartbroken. I remember hugging Chris Young, which was always awkward because I got kind of like to his stomach. Um, So I'm like kind of trying to hug Chris. And and we just cried because it was hard to lose the game, but it was even harder to lose that team and know the journey with this team in terms of playing basketball together is over. But it was being part of something like that. It grew us up in powerful ways. And I just want to say, guys, our most amazing experience of growing in unity and maturity really shouldn't be with a sports team. We need new eyes to see what an incredible thing the Lord is doing in his church because we are quite a cast of characters too. (laughs) But the Lord wants to forge an incredible unity in our diversity. And he wants us all to understand and buy into our role. He wants every one of us to be all in. He doesn't want anyone to be a spectator. That's the life that he has for us. And that's the life that he died to purchase for us because he loves his church and he wants to build it up in him because we're participants in his victory. We're participants in the work of ministry and we get to be participants in the growing unity and maturity of the church. It's an amazing, beautiful call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that Jesus has done for us as his church. We pray today that you would give us new vision for how we relate to your word and how we relate to ministry. Lord, thank you for those of us who are in Christ that we've all been given your spirit and some gift to serve you. I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly, but we would feel empowered and encouraged to get into the game. Lord, so show us what holds us back and Lord, give us grace for every weakness that you might work through that, that in our weakness you would be strong, uh, that you might build us up and raise us up to be your disciples and go and make disciples, that uh, we would be equipped for the work of ministry and we would see the church grow up in unity and maturity. Bless these table conversations. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about real things. Lord, do your work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.